Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. The website is uh, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also, Brought to you by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. He's the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. And as usual, we'll be talking about current world events. We'll also visit with Larry Reed, the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Father the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, two terrific uh, murder mysteries uh, with the location in Washington, D.C. It is May the 4th, and on this day in 1776, Rhode Island, the colony founded by the most radical religious dissenters from the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay Colony, we're talking about Roger Williams, the uh, separatist, Came the first North American colony to renounce its allegiance to King George III. Ironically, Rhode Island was the last state to ratify the new American Constitution more than 14 years later on May the 29th, 1790. Rhode Island served as a mercantile center of the transatlantic slave trade in the 18th century. West Indian molasses uh, became rum in Rhode Island distilleries which was then traded to the West African coast for slaves. After taking their human cargo across a notorious middle passage from Africa across the Atlantic to the Caribbean islands, Rhode Island merchants would then sell those who survived uh, the wretched conditions and rough ocean crossing the West Indian plantation owners for the use of slaves in exchange for fresh shipment of molasses. Desire to protect the lucrative trade triangle led Rhode Island to bristle at uh, British attempts to tighten their control over the colony's commerce. So uh, they ended up really uh, renouncing its relationship with Great Britain. And ironically, as I mentioned, the last to approve uh, joining uh, the United States of America, primarily because they were concerned about losing the the, uh, tariffs that they were charging other colonies for uh, for the uh, rum that they were making, unbelievable! I did not know that about until I read this uh, this this portion. Very interesting. Well, uh, will the U.S. stock market retest bear market lows that it ha- had on March the twenty third? It's perhaps the most prevalent question on Wall Street, and while there's no way of knowing the answer for sure, if history is any guide, when the stock market slips into bear market territory, typically defined by a decline of at least 20% from a recent peak, it tends to return there uh, to more low often than not, according to data from uh, uh, Investment Group. So far, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 622 points on Friday, or 2.6%. Markets have struggled to start off in May, after an uptrend in April that produced the best monthly gains in years since 1928, reviewing the past 25 bear markets, uh, there have been a lower price put in and uh, after the reaching a low. So in other words, it, it went up and then took another dip. The Dow is up about 28% from March 23rd and uh, is roughly uh, 27% from its low at 2,237, and that's the S&P 500. Many investors believe that the monetary and fiscal stimulus could be sufficient cocktail to ward off a revisit to the depths of March, but economic reports that point as a stark deterioration in economic activity compared with a few months ago, and we're talking about, of course, supply management as well as uh, manufacturing, it's dropped off substantially, and of course, investors will be watching the labor market market report of uh, non-farm payrolls uh, at the end of this week. Of course, which is down our, our employment about 30 million, about uh, one in seven employees is out of work right now. There is some encouraging news. The Food and Drug Administration gave emergency approval to COVID-19 antibody test that boasts near-perfect accuracy. Uh, Swiss drug maker Roche said that the new test, which determines whether someone has had the infect infection in the past, is proven to be 100% accurate. That's good news. They have to draw some blood, 
and uh, they take a look at it. So it's it's complicated. It has to be under uh, uh, doctor supervision. But, uh, you know, this allows to determine not only if uh, somebody has had, well, if somebody has had the, uh, the flu or the virus, uh, of course, their hope is they develop immunity. So the White House uh, response coordinator, coronavirus, uh, Dr. Burks, said on Saturday night that the U.S. significantly underestimated the number of asymptomatic cases that existed of coronavirus. And she's saying, hey, you know, we need to look out for this. It's extremely uh, contagious. Uh, there's a, a, a very high degree of a likelihood that somebody could get infected if they get near somebody that's had the virus. But it's also uh, not as, con- it's not as uh, devastating to most people that have a healthy immune system. What we know now from the very beginning is if you had comorbidities, if you had heart disease, if you had diabetes, if you have asthma, if you had cancer, if you're immune suppressed, immunosuppressed, all those issues could make you susceptible to a much more difficult course. And still, we're seeing the majority of people that are losing, we're losing to this disease have those other diseases that you just described, Burks continued. And so I do believe there's a lot of diseases we're seeing in the hospital right now that had pre-existing conditions. So uh, I was riding uh, my bike yesterday with uh, my good friend, Dr. George Markovich, and he believes that perhaps in December he may have actually had an experience with coronavirus. He doesn't. He hasn't been tested yet, but he believes he may have had coronavirus. So for the most part, most people are asymptomatic. I think it's pretty clear a message here that we need to lift the sanctions that we right now have on our behavior and our activities and get the economy back going. The president believes that deeply. We'll talk about that in a moment. In the meantime, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said on Sunday there was a significant amount of evidence that the new coronavirus emerged from a Chinese laboratory uh, but did not dis- dispute the U.S. intelligence agency's conclusion that it was not man-made. So, in other words, he's supporting, he's basically saying there's a significant amount of evidence that this came from the laboratory in Wuhan, he said on Sunday, referring to the virus that emerged late last year in China and killed about 240,000 people around the world and 67,000 right here in the United States. The best experts so far seem to think that it was man-made, said uh, Pompeo. I have no reason to disbelieve this at this point. But then he did not counter the conclusion from the U.S. intelligence agencies that uh, this is not man-made. So he backtracked a little bit. But he doubled down on his comments on Twitter, criticizing China's lack of cooperation with world health experts. China has had its history of infecting the world, and they have a history of running substandard laboratories. These are not the first times that we've had the world exposed to viruses as a result of failures in a Chinese lab, he added. It's so interesting. There's a report from the Office of uh, Director of National Intelligence said he concurred with the wide scientific consensus that the disease was not man-made. just makes me wonder how much world politics and uh, diplomacy play into this doublespeak about what happened. Uh, the president was a little bit more direct. He said Sunday night in a town hall meeting, I don't know if you saw it, we watched it, that China likely allowed the coronavirus to spread to the world so that other countries would suffer economically. Now, that's the president's statement. Unbelievable. They knew they had a problem, and I think they were embarrassed by the problem, very embarrassed, Trump said in a Fox News town hall and at the Lincoln Memorial. The case could be made, he said, that, hey, look, this is going to have to have a huge impact on China, and we might as well let the rest, let the rest of the world suffer as well, was kind of the imp- implication of what he said. Trump noted that China banned people from traveling from Wuhan to the rest of China, but allowed them to travel across the globe. What they really treated was the world badly on is they'd st- uh, stop people going to, into China, but they didn't stop people going to the rest of the world into the United States, he said. That some of the sharpest rhetoric against China these, uh, since he was elected president. Personally, I think they made a horrible mistake, and they didn't want to admit it, he said. My opinion is they made a mistake, and they tried to cover it, and they tried to put it out. It's really like trying to put out a fire, Trump said. The president even spoke about his relationship with President Xi Jinping in the past tense. He said, I had a very good relationship. He's a strong man. He's a tough man. But this should never have happened. The virus should not have spread all over the world. What I think, basically, is that the Nobel Prize, I read that a Nobel Prize winning 
immunologist from Japan said that the phones were disconnected. He used to work at this lab, apparently. He said the phones are now dis- disconnected. And he believes that uh, Communist Chinese Party, that uh, he believes that the, these folks are all gone, and he thinks probably dead. So that's why they're not allowing, in, my, in his opinion, people to visit the lab and do a discovery process on what happened in the lab. The virus came from the lab on purpose, accident, who knows? But the Chinese Communist Party is working hard to put a spin on this. I think they've lost credibility uh, in the world and therefore influence. It's going to change the dynamics, I think, of what's happening in the world, not only geopolitically, but also financially uh, and uh, their their influence financially around the world. Uh, He took a hostile tone uh, at the press meeting during uh, the Fox News town hall last night. He said one woman from New Jersey challenged him on uh, his style in dealing with the press, and he said, you know what, Uh, I'm not going to change how I do it with the press because I think, quite frankly, just like Lincoln, they treat me badly. I feel like if I was one of them, I'd be be walked off the stage, he said, if he went along with uh, their horrendous, biased questions, he said. The president said that the 94 to 95% of the press is hostile, what parts of the country continue to support him. I'm standing up there, and instead of normal questions, the level of anger and hatred, I'm looking at them, I say, what's your problem, he said. He said the media will continue to be hostile no matter what he does. I think he's right about that. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Naples Illustrated, bringing you infinite luxury lifestyles. The website is naplesillustrated.com. Okay, coming up, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Shore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards with six full productions this season. But did you know that Gulf Shore Playhouse brings unique theater education programs and opportunities for children, teens, and adults alike? Education is a vital component of Gulf Shore Playhouse's mission, providing programs aimed at enriching the lives of our children, teens, and students of all ages. Each offering provides real-life skills and learning experiences that are invigorating, nurturing, and readily accessible to every member of our community thanks to the scholarships and reduced-price programming for our region's most deserving students. From in-school residencies and pre-professional theater training to community partnerships, audience engagement, and student matinees, the goal is to inspire creativity, encourage self-expression, and support the blossoming of self-confidence, collaboration, and a deep appreciation for the arts. With each passing year, Golf Show Playhouse continues to touch the lives of tens of thousands of students throughout Southwest Florida. Isn't it time that a young person in your life finds out more? For more information about student camps and the Teen Conservatory, visit the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. 
And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And nothing builds more self-confidence and self-esteem for young people than to get up on the stage to be in the performing arts. Great programs going on this summer when the... the uh, the uh, limitations are lifted after the coronavirus pandemic. You can visit GulfShorePlayhouse.org to find out more. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. As I mentioned before the break, he's the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. He's also an author. He's written several books, most of them on past presidents. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So I hear there's good news in Israel that actually, in, in terms of the shutdown of the, the uh, people are now, I guess, opening up the economy? Slowly but surely. I mean, stores other than the ones in the malls have opened, have opened up. They're planning to open up the malls, it looks like, on this Friday. Uh, schools went back for first through third grade. And uh, they're going to move that along by the end of May to to the other grades. Um, They're moving steadily, uh, steadily towards opening up, but you know, step by step, nothing, nothing drastic. Um, You know, well thought out. The limitations of where you can be, a hundred meters from from houses, is is gone. Um, Those sort of things are slowly but surely being done, and they're doing it because. They got down to 22 new cases yesterday, right. and all within two communities, it looks like, mostly. And a community of, about, I think, a, you have about 8 million people in Israel? 8, eight million, 8.5 million people. Yeah. So Florida is 20 million, I think, what did you have yesterday? A uh, thousand new cases or something like that? I don't know, um, actually. But it's so interesting to me that, uh, and by the way, I remind our listeners that you are in Tel Aviv right now, so you're watching this, uh, it's right before your very eyes. Uh, right, absolutely. Amazing um, result. In Tel Aviv, the... Our rate, as they call it, is at point one something percent. Yeah, it's so it's interesting. Very, very low. Yeah, so um, that's great news. And what do you think the uh, implications are for the rest of the world and for the United States? I don't know. I mean, it's, look, the, Israel went more drastically than most places did, other than China. Mm-hmm. Um, and keep that in mind. They started earlier. Israel closed down um, not just for Chinese citizens, but closed down arrivals from the Far East from all of the Far East first, and then anyone arriving who was um, who was an Israeli citizen had to go into uh, self-isolation for 14 days. Mm-hmm. They did that to Europe you know, long before anyone else did. They held that a little bit too long for the United States, and most of, 40% of, the America, of Israel's uh, infections came from the United States, actually. Hmm. Um, so, um, and then, you know, they limited the people to 100 meters from their homes. Almost all the businesses were closed. Um, the government did not do enough economically, quite honestly. The United States government has done better in terms of the PPP loans that, than the Israeli government has done. Um, but the Israeli, you know, they're used to emergencies. So they're used to dealing with it without complaining. I mean, complaining, always complain, obviously. But, you know, no demonstrations, nothing like that in any which way. And a realization that this, you know, this was the only solution. Yeah, uh, they may have gone a little bit too far. No one will ever know. You know, you never can prove a negative. It's one of those big, yeah. big problems. Well, that's the um, that's the circumstance we find ourselves here. We're kind of on the razor's edge. Uh, of course, real concern for for health on the one hand, but the other hand, uh, the economy is deteriorating quickly. You know, fifty percent of all jobs are held uh, by small businesses, and uh, slowly but surely, I'm sure you're going to see some of these small businesses fail because they're not out operating. So. Uh, in my view, I, w- I am for, I, what I'm seeing is I think most people are asymptomatic, that are healthy, uh, and the people that are have uh, suppressed immune systems need to self-quarantine and take care of themselves, but we need to open up the Doesn't economy. Work, that's, that, 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 that's, that's the inherent problem. There's no way to self-quarantine people, ultimately, because they have to come into contact with someone from a grocery store or their doctor or whatever yeah, yeah. works. So. It just doesn't work. Any attempt at doing that is is a fool's errand, in my opinion, because there's just no way to ultimately cut off, you know, between high blood pressure, all the, the all the pre-existing conditions, obesity, etc. At least forty percent of Americans have one of the pre preconditions. Yeah, well, so that's really hard to to, to quarantine forty percent of the population. So, uh, but you um, will acknowledge the other side of the equation. We are on a razor's edge. Well, I agree. I agree. The other side of the equation is terrible. I mean, there, there, there is no good 
solutions here. That's part of the problem. And the problem that everyone needs to do is this really terrible, difficult balancing act um, that, that it's almost impossible impossible to do because, look, it's, it's terribly um, destruct, destructive to the, to the economy. There's yeah. no question about that. And, that, and therefore um, destructive to people's health as well. If people, uh, if, you know, we've talked about some of the symptoms of depression, of uh, over-drinking, of all kinds of things going on right now. There are unintended consequences trying to protect people's health of actually destroying some people's health. Right, no question about it. But you know, then you look. Then you look at New York State with twenty-four, almost twenty-five thousand deaths, mm-hmm. um, and so it's 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 a real hard hard balancing act. Um, right now in the United States, the um, death rate is coming down in the New York metropolitan area while going up in the rest of the country. Yeah. So that really makes it very very difficult to try to figure out what what the right balance is. What's the right role of the government in terms of you know helping with businesses that are that might be going you know might go under with, you know that's a legitimate good business that could, could under normal circumstances survive but it can't survive being closed for two months. How do you how do you bridge those gaps? This is very very difficult. No one's ever it been is, before. and uh, I, I'm for um, one of the things I'm really pleased about is uh, our, our attorney general is taking a look at this and decide and uh, saying maybe we ought to open up the economy first be, f- faster because of uh, constitutional rights and individual liberty. We each know our own health. We're probably in the best but we decision. Don't, but then, okay, and we, we disagree about this, but it has nothing to do with our own health. It does. That's the problem when a pandemic a, a pandemic. By you deciding to tell you, I'm healthy, I'll be okay, but getting infected, you can affect me because you can. You're going to be pandemic. You're going to be. You're going to. You might be infected. You don't even know it because you're asymptomatic. You're going to go to Walmart or whatever store that you shop in, and you're going to give it to the cashier. But here's the thing. And, I mean, as we as we mentioned, most people will become asymptomatic or have very little. For example, my my close friend. My orthopedic surgeon and I were visiting yesterday, had a 25-mile bike ride, and it was great. And uh, he said that he thought he had the coronavirus at one time. He had some difficulty breathing, some uh, respiratory issues, but it but went away in about 48 hours, and he was fine. And this happened in December, quite frankly. So uh, uh, for December, it couldn't have been. So I know, I know other people make that claim, but it didn't exist in the States in December. The first possible arrival was in January sometime. But look, I know of... look. I know people across the whole spectrum. Mm-hmm. I know people who were on a respirator for two weeks and came off after being on the respirator for two weeks. I know people who died, and I know people who had mild symptoms and um, after you know being home for two weeks from like like a flu, except a little bit longer and a little bit stronger than the flu, were able to go back to work. Yeah, and it and it's you know it's a wide range of, of different symptoms. Yeah, but the but people the people that have problems with the, uh, suppressed immune systems and with pr- cancer, other diseases, you know, they have connections. They can say, "I need help. Can you make? Sh- can you help me here? I, could you do my okay, shopping see, for the, me?" The, 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 prob- the problem we have is twofold, and to keep this in mind: is number one, we still don't understand enough, which is something we need to keep in mind. Second of all, yes, the people who really have the suppressed immune systems, etc., this is a, a kiss of death if they get get the disease. But we've seen many, many cases that have not necessarily uh, people who have such pre preconditioning cases and suddenly they make a turn for the, you know, uh, turn for the bad. Yeah. I mean, look at Boris Johnson. Pretty much, you know, he finally admitted today that they were ready preparing a notification that he had died. Right. Right. Uh, well, you know, so, the other th- the other thing that's happening here in the United States is that uh, people are dying with coronavirus. People ninety years of age and so forth, and and there's a, apparently a real motivation on the part of healthcare officials to put coronavirus uh, or uh, COVID nineteen on the death certificate. So maybe yeah, that's one the, of those stories that if those are one of your urban stories that are circulating amongst your your internet yeah, no, friends. It's no, a, no, it's absolutely there's, there's true. No intre- there's no particular interest in in doing that, and people are not. Yes, you know, it, it's true. That some people with precondition might have died anyway at this point, but not at the rate and not at the speed and not in the cases that we're talking about. You don't suddenly go into a you don't in a nursing home situation suddenly you don't have in the matter of a week you know thirty forty fifty patients suddenly die. All those patients may have died in the next two years, but they wouldn't have died in the next. Two weeks. All right, Mark. Well, listen, we've got to take a little bit of break. I want to come back and talk a little bit about what the impact on the world economy. Can you stick around? Absolutely. 
All right, we're going to have more here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Lyndon and myself. Located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, Blue Provence offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. During the governor's stay-at-home notice, Blue Provence is offering pick-up curbside takeout options five nights a week, Tuesday through Saturday. To place an order, just call 261-8239 Tuesday through Saturday from 4 to 7 p.m. A 20% discount will be applied on all food orders during these unprecedented times. Compliment your order with amazing wines from the Blue Provence Retail Wine Store, offering amazing choice and value. Blue Provence Wine Store is open Monday to Saturday, 9 to 12 p.m., and has one of the most eclectic and fun wine cellars offering 10% off cases. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I hope you'll visit the website, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. And again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. So, Mark, let's talk about the world economy and what's going on right now. One thing that occurs to me is that uh, the ter- in terms of political power, I just wonder how this is all working out because Pompeo yesterday, yesterday our Secretary of State, said that he thought that the uh, virus itself came out of the lab. And uh, then the, the intelligence uh, agencies, he pointed out, they pointed out, were in this interview, uh, were in disagreement. Thought it was a not man-made. It was a came from animals. But he didn't disagree. Right, that, was a, that was a very bizarre interview, I must say. If you look at the words of it, first he said it came out of the labs, yeah. and then and then the correspondent said, but the intelligence community says that it wasn't man-made. And he said, well, I agree with the intelligence com- um, community. I, and then he sort of pivoted to say, well, the, the Chinese have to be held responsible in any case. Well, yeah, that's, so, yeah, I, I agree with that. But I think, the, I think basically the fact he's a smart man. He, he knows what he did. He didn't, uh, he didn't uh, contradict himself. He, he laid that out there. And I think that's an important, uh, important thing that happened. And many countries now are blaming China for, for what's happened to them economically and in terms of their health. I think that's going to have a big impact on world politics and uh, world diplomacy. I mean, it certainly will have an impact. People are not exactly feeling great vis-a-vis China right now. That's clearly had that impact. Yeah. Um, a lot of the the positive PR that China had managed to get itself over the last couple of years has been wiped out completely. Yeah. Um, does it change the power relationships and the economic relationships? That I'm a little bit more wary to say. Yeah. Um, I think, they, look, there's also some other things that are clearly going to happen. I think everyone in the world is going to decide that they can't be dependent on China for the level of the dependency that's existed. Right. So what we're going to see happen is, um, and this is like a good thing and a bad thing at the same time, 
because remember the fact that China makes all these things is a natural result of of you know Smith's view of uh, comparative advantages of different countries, and and China became manufacturing center for a whole you know whole slew of industries. Right. And the end result is that um, now uh, countries are going to decide. Listen, we need to move some of us, a lot of our production home, whichever wherever home that might be. Yeah, not be so dependent. Mark the other the other thing that's happened here is I think there's now it's not China but the Chinese Communist Party. I mean the focus now is more on the party itself as opposed to the Chinese people. At least the, yeah, it doesn't make a difference. You know, it's uh, trying to separate those things out is is very nice. Yeah, but it has no effect. I mean, what are you, what are we trying to do by doing that? Well, I wonder. I wonder though. It, it brings up the question about how tolerant the Chinese people are going to be to the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, it's a very small percentage of the people in China. Yeah, but look what happened in the end. In the end, at first they were very. Um, there was a great deal of criticism of the of the government initially in terms of what happened. Mm-hmm. But in the end, their their actions, while they came late, managed to. To hold down the virus, I mean, again, we don't know whether we can truly believe well, you know, the numbers from China. Right. But they seem to, at least, I mean, the numbers of dead probably are much higher than they were saying in Wuhan, but they seem to have limited it to the greater Wuhan area to a very, very large extent. And so the Chinese people could say, you know, the Chinese government say, look what we did. We managed, look what we did, and look what the United States did. Yeah. We did a great job. We were a little bit late. We did a great job of holding it together. Only our system where we can literally force people not to leave their homes for six weeks. I mean, just think about it right now. Can you see the American government in any place, in any way, forcing people not to leave their homes for six weeks? No, but, you know, but no. the, the president last night, in fact, the, the president, uh, in his remarks, basically said, how can, how can the Chinese forbid flights from Wuhan to other parts of China and allow people to come to the United States and other parts of the okay, world? That was, uh, that's also, by the way... Um, a falsehood that's been proven to be not true, unfortunately. I wish we could easily say that. The the flights themselves that supposedly took place, I've actually looked into this. The there were flights that were scheduled and were not eliminated from there's an international system where you keep track of all the flights. So those flights and was, there was a two day difference between theoretically what everyone's talking about, that the flights inside China were were stopped and the the flights from Wuhan to the rest of the world weren't. But the reality was they were all stopped. They just weren't eliminated from this international database for two days. Uh, all so, right. So, so that's not a that's a falsehood. I'm sorry to say that's unfortunate uh, be falsehood easy. because it's, it certainly had some traction in the mainstream media. So yeah, it's had some traction, but it's just unfortunately false. It's yeah. one of those things that it, it's a it's a good look. The Chinese are definitely responsible for two things. One is they clearly downplayed it initially, but it's not at all clear a lot of the downplaying was taking place even within China. Mm-hmm. In other words. The, the Wuhan government knew there was something wrong and was not really sharing it with the central government because they, they, they had their own political needs in Wuhan, and they didn't want um, people in, in you know, Beijing to know what was going on for a couple of days. So that was one thing, and I think those people have all been arrested, but I'm not positive about that. Uh, and then there's the fact that they, you know, they told the facts, but they didn't you know, give a good enough warning, let's put it that way. But they did, you know, the, this is by... by the second week in January, or third week in January, they they already had had given the the source code, the DNA sequencing of the of the um, of the virus, yeah. and uh, the world sort of knew. And like I said, you know, some countries acted very quickly, and some countries took a little bit longer to act. So the question um, I have on my mind, Mark, and if um, I hate to change topics quickly, it's on the same topic, but the impact of all this on the world economy, and I, I would like to think the United States was in a better well, position. There's a whole bunch of things we have to keep in mind, and let's think about it. First of all, world tourism is going to be way down. So many countries depend on tourism. I can't imagine until we have a vaccine that that many people are going to take leisure trips. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're planning to... to come to the Mediterranean this summer, but I have my doubts you'll ever make it to the Mediterranean on a cruise this summer, mm-hmm. uh, unless there's a vaccine by then. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, time is, you know, how many more people who are not going to travel and take a risk? Um, air flights are going to get more expensive because, you know, if, if they're going to have to have social distancing on a plane, that means less passengers per plane. That means you have to, um, inc- you know, increase um, your fares in order to cover the, the flight. Mm-hmm. Um 
So, so you're going to see that tourism is going to be way down worldwide. Yeah. Um, even business travel is going to be way down. I think people learned during this crisis that, hey, look, we can have a Zoom meeting. It works just as well. Right. Well, maybe not just as well, but it certainly isn't, doesn't value the quest of flying somewhere as being jet-lagged, whatever it might be, hotels and everything else. Right. We can do it by Zoom. That sort of works. Right. Um, I wouldn't want to be in the, in the commercial real estate business at the moment with offices. Yeah. Because I have no doubt in my mind that um, we're going to see a drop in use of offices. Many yeah. businesses have discovered maybe we don't have to have all the people in in every day. Maybe we can work, you know, just a few people in every day and we'll have meetings and mm-hmm. we'll work from home. It's worked pretty well for the big companies, so I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I agree. Um, and, and, and again, I, I think we're going to lose certain efficiencies in the world economy also. You know, Mark, we haven't had a chance to talk about what's happened in Korea and the skirmish on the border and all that. There's so many things to discuss. <laughs> we're, we're out of time, unfortunately, but I genuinely appreciate your commentary each and every week. And of course, just a reminder, listeners, that you're speaking to us from Tel Aviv and uh, just uh, just grateful that you came on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, Bob. You as well. Thank you. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For the best in food and drink, as well as great live entertainment, go to the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar. Formerly known as Weekend Willie's, the Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar has terrific new local owners offering a great new upscale decor and a fabulous new menu. Linda and I are weekly regulars to hear live blues, but you can stop by anytime for great food and drink, to watch your favorite sporting event, or to hear great live entertainment five nights a week. The Dog 2 Sports and Music Bar is located at 5310 Shirley Street, just off Pine Ridge Road, and it's open from 11 a.m. until close every day. Visit the website dogtoothnaples.com or call 431-7004. That's 431-7004. I hope we'll see you there. As Southwest Florida is impacted by the coronavirus crisis, the organizations that provide relief and support to our community's most vulnerable population are finding their resources stretched. For 32 years, St. Matthew's House has provided food, shelter, and comfort to those struggling with poverty, food insecurity, and homelessness. St. Matthew's House is the only emergency homeless shelter in Cuyahoga County, sheltering more than 300 men, women, and children every night and providing more than 500,000 meals each year to those in need. For those who have shelter but are food insecure, direct assistance is offered through the St. Matthew's House Food Pantry and Grocery Distribution. Donations of food, hygiene supplies, detergent, diapers, and monetary support are needed. Curbside drop-off is available at St. Matthew's House Main Thrift Store at 2601 Airport Road, South Naples. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization that does not solicit government funding. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org or call 239-774-0500. That's 774-0500. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And a great season lined up uh, starting in October. I hope you'll get tickets at golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, uh, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Larry Reed. Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure, Bob, as always. Thank you, Larry. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Foundation for Economic Education, tell us about your mission and what you do. Okay. Uh, your listeners can learn a lot more about us by visiting our website at fee, dot org. Uh, there you'll see that we, uh, every day, post a brand-new commentary on current issues as well as matters of history and economics. We focus on young people of high school and college age, and our purpose and mission are to inform and educate and inspire young people in ideas of liberty, 
free enterprise, private property, limited government, and personal character. And we do that through not only what we write, but through programs for young people all over the country. Yeah, and I've met young people who have participated in the programs, and I tell you what, it is life-changing for the better. I just encourage our listeners, if you have a young person in your life, a grandchild or a, a child uh, at that in those ages, uh, again, go to fee.org, F-E-E.org. So, Larry, uh, you sent me a copy of a, a test for Harvard admissions going, dating back in 1967. And I went through the test... And I couldn't answer a single question. Things have changed in terms of uh, modern education, in terms of, uh, I'm, gonna th- I'm saying, classical education and what kids are learning these days. Yes, indeed. Uh, you said 1967. I think uh, you meant to say 1869. Oh, 1869. Uh, I, I, I missed the date there. <laughs> oh, that's all right. But uh, the, the uh, disparity between what we were expected to know to before we could go to Harvard then and go to Harvard today is uh, even greater, of course. Um, That entrance exam showed that uh, there was a wide range of knowledge that uh, aspiring Harvard students were expected to know. Now, Harvard, of course, was one of the better uh, and more challenging universities of the day, but still, it gives you a glimpse, that uh, 1869 exam, of how good the basic education was in America at the time, and that uh, runs counter to what most people think. They, they seem to think that uh, oh, uh, before government schooling and especially federal funding, uh, Americans were an illiterate people, but mm-hmm. precisely the opposite is the case. We were an amazingly learned people uh, for, for the first hundred years of our history when there was uh, almost no government involvement in education. Right. I mean, it, the, you see the stories of hiring the school marm and having the uh, the schoolhouse and kids uh, learning in the schoolhouse. And uh, public education really didn't start until, I think, about the turn of the 20th century. Well, compulsory uh, government education didn't start until the very late 19th century, uh, well after the Civil War. Uh, there was only one state in the Union that had uh, any compulsory government schooling uh, up until the 1870s, and that was Massachusetts. But elsewhere, even though we were still very much a frontier country uh, with a lot of uh, expanse of land and, and uh, uh, primitive settlements, usually the first thing that settlers did when they uh, started a new town was to start a school. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were committed uh, to education uh, to a far greater extent than most Americans today appreciate. Yes, and so uh, the real story here in my mind, I mean, back in the turn of the, in the 1860s or so, they, there was a McGuffey's reader, and, and kids were reading about just not only learning to read, but also getting object lessons on character, you know. And right now we have so much missing in our educational system today. And uh, and think of the millions and billions of dollars that we've poured into public education uh, and government schools only to see the the uh, quality of education, I'm going to say, deteriorate in comparison to the rest of the world. We're, we rank way down in terms of educational performance, say, for people who graduate from high school. That's right. And in colonial America, believe it or not, and this is according to Lawrence Creeman, uh, who is regarded as the dean of American education historians, he estimates that the literacy rate of that period was between 80 and 90 percent. Wow. And you know, uh, today in Collier County, which is where we live, uh, 58% of the kids in fifth grade can read at sc- at uh, grade level. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's, yeah. And I, it's I don't amazing. think that's I don't think that's an anomaly. I mean, there's some school systems that do quite well, but f- quite frankly, here in Collier County, we think we think uh, we're doing quite well. These schools are getting A's and B's, and it has a lot to do with with uh, Common Core and all these other programs that have been established for education that uh, really don't educate. We need to get back to classical education, in my opinion. Yes, I think so. Do you know that ben, uh, Benjamin Franklin taught himself five languages and was not thought to be exceptional? And Jeff- Jefferson uh, or Thomas Jefferson taught himself half a dozen, including Arabic. Wow. Uh, and George Washington uh, was uh, uh, embarrassed endlessly by his lack of formal education, and yet readers of his journals today 
uh, just marvel at his intellect and wonder why he ever felt uh, insecure. Now, they were exceptional men even of their day, but nonetheless, it was nothing for a man or a woman in those days to learn algebra, geometry, navigation, science, logic, grammar, history, you name it, entirely through self-education without any uh, federal funding. <laughs> and and uh, I, I look again back to this Harvard exam, 1869. I'm sorry, I mis- misinterpreted. I didn't see the, I said 1969. But irrespective, I mean, uh, you take a look at this, the uh, math questions, the, uh, the ba- history questions, it's just amazing what these what these uh, people had to learn in order to go to Harvard. Yeah, that's right, and they did it. Uh, I think the most amazing thing is they did it at a time when government was not ordering them to do it. Government didn't fund them doing it. This was private initiative, and which raises the question, why was compulsory government uh, funding and compulsory government schooling ever started in the first place? And it was not because of any widespread perception that Americans were, were illiterate. Uh, uh, not at all. It was started mainly because of concern that immigrants coming to the country uh, uh, wouldn't uh, learn what they should and instead would go off in directions the government didn't want them to. Well, and I would suggest, too, there's probably a political motivation, too, to, to keep, <laughs> to bring people in who would uh, adapt to our system, to the to the ways of the world here in the United States of America, as opposed to uh, going their own ways. Just uh, yep. just my thought. Again, Larry Reed, the uh, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, just genuinely appreciate your commentary. And again, our listeners, I'd rec- encourage you to visit fee.org. Thanks so much for joining us, Larry. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg. He Jim is a uh, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He retired. He's written a couple of books since then. The, they are Follow the Leader, and Shake the Money Tree, two great murder mysteries located in Washington, D.C., uses, uh, refers to government and all kinds of things, his past as a journalist. We're going to do that more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. Of course, that program's on hold until the economy gets back, but I hope you'll visit the website to find out more about this and other great programs. It's the FGA. 
www.thebarons.org. We have with us Jim McTagg, as I mentioned before the break. He is Barron's, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several books. His two latest are novels, as I mentioned, uh, Follow the Leader and Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to uh, be on your show. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still I'm still in semi uh, lockdown because uh, I'll give him my uh, credentials. I had my tenth uh, grandchild come into the the world last week. Congratulations! So, I, so I'm an officially you know I'm a geezer. Uh, I have a lot to be concerned about from uh, coronavirus, but uh, I'm happy that the states are finally using some common sense and at least opening up parks because. Uh, it's crazy. Like here, here in Northern Virginia, which is a intensely populated area of this huge state, mm-hmm. uh, they they closed all the parks. You know, you could go into Costco, you could go into the supermarket, and and by the way, people were not dropping dead in the supermarkets. Right. But you but you couldn't go under God's blue sky, and social distance. So along the Potomac River, uh, there are some pull-offs like, uh, you know, scenic overlooks, maybe with 10 parking spaces. Well, those scenic overlooks suddenly had uh, 30, 40, 50 cars in those 10 spaces. Yeah. So so uh, it's absolute craziness. So, uh, you know, as, as we learn, as we educate people and we learn how, what to do, you know, this, this virus is insidious. Um, it's contagious, Jim. It's not. I mean, it's not. It's insidious for people who have compromised immune systems. I get that, but most people are asymptomatic. I mean, to me, it's not much different than the flu, except that uh, more people uh, who have compromised immune systems could actually become suffer and die as a result. But the number of deaths is. It doesn't even reach the level of the flu. Ex- except that what it does is in, in clusters. It does overwhelm the hospitals. Like I saw a statistic, and, and these numbers are coming down. Uh, New Jersey, which is a very populated state, right. has uh, something like 5,000 active patients in their hospital now, which mm-hmm. is down. It was up over 6,000. Yeah. 1,500 of those people are in intensive care. That's a lot of people in an intensive care unit at any one time. It is. So... So it's like a battlefield uh, triage casualty situation, yeah. which it just, as you said, it's contagious. It puts, it really puts onus on, on people like us to use our common sense and social distance, but it doesn't make sense to flatten our whole economy. And you know, the whole you know, point was to flatten the curve of people, infectious people, so that the emergency rooms wouldn't be overwhelmed. Uh, you've heard this a million times, Absolutely. but we flat, we've totally flattened the economy. Yeah. Uh, our but, local hospital system uh, laid off something like six or 700 people because uh, they're losing so much money uh, due to the absence of people going into the hospital for knee replacements and things like that. In fact, at my, I was uh, spent some social time with my uh, orthopedic surgeon, and uh, we once a month take a ride, bicycle ride, 25-mile ride, and talk about the problems of the world, and it was really informative and interesting. He told me that he has a, a backup of 250 patients who need knee replacements. 250, if you can imagine that, Jim. Yeah, it's, um, and they call it elective surgery. For a lot of these people, it's not really elective. Uh, they're they're crippled, and they need the, the knee replacement to live a normal life. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, uh, one of his patients, they had him scheduled for August, and uh, his uh, assistant called up and said, we're able to do the knee replacement tomorrow. And he started crying in happiness and joy because of, uh, the, you know, these people, people are suffering there because they had heart, heart issues, they've got cancer issues, and they can't, they can't, they can't get the, the necessary needs for, for, uh, for taking care of their problems because of uh, the hospital. And, and the hosp- many hospitals are empty. So, uh, that's a good point, too, because like, uh, one of the things I applaud for Trump that he's criticized for uh, nonstop in the major newspapers is his uh, deference to the states in uh, tackling the uh, coronavirus response. 
I think it makes perfect sense because, as you point out, every area is different. Right. And so local mm-hmm. is better than federal. You know, some bureaucrat in Washington, who, by the way, in Washington, bureaucrats have a bias towards inaction. Uh, it's just the way the bureaucracy is set up by Congress. So it makes perfect sense to let the local commanders take charge of this thing. And, and um, how about how about individual people make, taking charge of their own lives who better understand their own health conditions and what their needs might be and in, in, the, in the face of this threat? You know, I think if people can make their own decisions. We don't need a central planner making these decisions, Jim. I know, I know. We don't need the communist Chinese solution. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, you know, I'm kind of weird. I don't watch... I don't have cable television. I uh, I, I watch ten minutes of the network news, uh, and, and not the rest of it because it's worthless. I get most of my news from printed publications, yeah. and I just see how biased and unfair. I mean, the president, who he's very inarticulate, of course. So he has, but he did express this. Uh, I, I watched clips of the town hall meeting. He is being hammered relentlessly by people twisting and, and just trying to run him down. Right. And and uh, I can, having been in that White House press room, as we discussed last week, I appreciate his frustration and uh, I admire his uh, willingness to strike back. So, uh, but if you yellow sheet him, you know, in Washington, we we have a term yellow sheeting where you put positive on one side and negative on the other. Everybody has positives and negatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, the positives for Trump right off the bat, and he's using this as a campaign, was his tough stance against China for the, for his entire administration. Yeah. And, and China showed us uh, how they are weaponizing their economy to hurt our economy. And we saw that in, their, in the Wuhan flu. Uh, response: How they they kept the uh, the deaths and uh, of of that infection secret, and they hoarded supplies to yeah. the detriment of the United States of America. Yeah. So, uh, and they had been killing our people before that with the uh, fentanyl, you know, the illegal shipment of drugs. So I think that's a big plus for for President Trump. Hey, thanks for reminding uh, us of that. You know, Jim, I'd forgotten all about the fentanyl. That's the what's the source of that? It's China which is, you know, basically it's another source of death for American citizens and uh, uh, crippling them and uh, making them uh, unproductive. It's just, uh, <laughs> the, 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 and they're stealing our intellectual property or intellectual capital. I mean, their company, the uh, Huawei, is uh, basically a, a, a branch of the Chinese government that's over here spying on us. Apparently, they gave some drones to people to help uh, f- uh, make sure that people were properly distancing. And the drones were given by the Chinese government. But that's going to end up uh, tools for spying, actually, going forward. So the Chinese government, I think, is really at war with the United States, not necessarily with big guns and with uh, atomic bombs, but more with, uh, you know, the, the whole notion of uh, doing things that could cripple our economy. Yeah, it's, uh, I think they learned the lessons that the Japanese and the Germans learned during World War II, that the secret of of the United States' success against the tyrannies uh, was our, our industrial power, our industrial base. And so it's in their interest as a tyrannical government to erode that base and, and weaken the United States. So, um, you know, I see polls now where, where like in Texas, they have uh, President Trump running even with uh, Joe Biden. I don't pay much attention to those right. because when the dust clears, um, if you yellow sheet Trump, he's done some good things. He now, certainly is. The great unknown is, uh, you know, how this virus will proceed over the summer and into the spring. Will we have a spike somewhere? And will we pre-election have a uh, big run-up in deaths? Yeah. Yeah, and, just don't know. And the recovery of the economy is going to play a role. But also, it, we don't have time to talk about, but the uh, probable release of information regarding the pre-election, uh, you know, all the things leading up to the Mueller report, I think that's going to be very interesting this week as well. Jim, genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. 
It's a pleasure, Bob. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Lots of good exchanges. Uh, Tomorrow, we're going to visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator. Boo Mortensen will be with us, as well as Seton Motley is the founder and president of uh, Less Government. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.